Throughout this Lenten season, we have been trying to come to this moment to set the stage, as it were, for a deeper understanding of its significance by examining in great depth the story of Jesus' transforming work in the life of one human being, the man the scripture names Lazarus. The very name Lazarus, as I explained several weeks ago, literally means one whom God helps. It's from the Hebrew Eleazar. It literally means someone whom God helps. And Lazarus is important not only because he is a particular individual whom God helped, someone in need of God's grace, but because he is also like us, we who also desperately need God's help. The first thing that we discover about Lazarus is that he's sick. In fact, it's the crucial characteristic that is supplied about him before we're told anything else. Before we learn that Lazarus lives in a town called Bethany or has a pair of sisters named Mary and Martha, we find out Lazarus has got this problem. The gospel writer John is very careful in the way he tells this story. He chooses to stress that the primary characteristic or condition of Lazarus's life is his sickness. The text goes on to say, so the sisters sent word to Jesus. Lord, the one you love is sick. We know from the chapter that immediately precedes the storyline that Jesus is about a day's walk away up the Jordan River doing his work. So let's suppose, just for argument's sake, that the sisters send a messenger in the direction of Jesus on Monday. And that messenger walks as quickly as he can or she can, and he arrives at the place where Jesus is on Tuesday. The text goes on to say that when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. For mysterious reasons, as we talked about earlier in Lent, Jesus chooses to wait two more days before deciding to go to Bethany. So now it is Thursday. It takes Jesus a day's walk to get to Bethany, so he arrives on Friday. It has now been four days since Mary and Martha said, Oh my goodness, Lazarus is really sick. We better call Jesus. And then we're told that Jesus found that, and I quote, on his arrival, Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. I hope you're getting this timetable. If Jesus gets there on the fourth day after the message went out, and Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days, what do you know is true? Apparently, Lazarus died the very day his sisters noticed he was sick enough to merit calling Jesus for help. And this is not an incidental detail. Sickness is like this. 
it begins its work, it does its damage long before a person is fully aware, much less the people around them, that there's a serious problem that's going on. People can go on for a very long time without even realizing that they are desperately in need of help. And as Jesus so often said when he confronted people's physical maladies, their blindness, their paralysis, their hunger, he often stressed that what is true of the body is so often even more so true of the soul. We can be very, very soul sick before we realize that we need help. We can be blind, in fact, to the reality that sin is destroying our life from the inside out. And if it is left unaddressed, if we do not get the help we need, it will ultimately lead to our death, our spiritual death. We can deny sometimes that the very problems that we are having with our politics, our planet, our relationships comes from this primary sickness. It comes from this fundamental selfishness, this sinful passion, this turning away from God. We can apply all kinds of band-aids to our spiritual cancer, but we cannot avoid the ultimate consequence, for as the Bible says, the wages of sin is death. The ultimate impact of our inner life is a total loss of all our life. And this is why we so need help. This is why we so need Jesus. We need the one who says, the only one who can say, I am the resurrection and the life. And the one who believes in me will live even though they die. I tell you, this sickness will not end in death. It will not end with death. When Jesus goes on to subsequently raise Lazarus from his tomb, it is more than an act of love for one man and one family. In fact, it's fascinating. The entire Gospel of John is structured around uh, seven great signs Samaya in the Greek, pointers to the larger reality. The breaking of the bread and its multiplication. The opening of eyes of the blind man. Uh, so many of the different acts that Jesus does are pointers to the larger condition of humanity and of his capacity to address us at our deepest point of need. And so in raising Lazarus, he is also giving us a sign, not only of his own coming resurrection, but of his power to ultimately bring hope to those who suffer from all kinds of death, from the spiritual death that will destroy us in the end if we do not put our trust in him. Christ will forgive us. He will redeem us. He will renew every one of us who love him and whom he loves. And as we have seen in this story, his salvation may not come according to our particular timetable. It certainly didn't do so for Mary and Martha. But nonetheless, we 
must be bold like those sisters to ask Jesus for the help that we need. What is the help that you need? Ask Jesus for that help today. Ask him for the forgiving grace, for the cleansing grace, for the sustaining or the guiding or the lifting grace that you need to rise up out of whatever tomb you may be in, whatever tomb you may be fearing. There will come a day when Jesus says to all who turn to him for help, I have it for you. Lazarus, come out. Come out. I will not pretend that trusting God in times of turmoil or even hearing the voice of Jesus speaking is easy. It hasn't been for me. It probably hasn't been for you. We want, of course, to believe that there is a power for new beginnings. We want to walk through life with the kind of hope and freedom that comes from knowing, from believing that Jesus has already overcome our sin, already defeated death, and that we will be okay in the end. But it can be a struggle, can it, to get there, to really live in the reality of these things. This is the way of human flesh. We're a little like the picture of Lazarus, I think, metaphorically speaking here, that we get in the last verse of his story, and I quote, the dead man came out, his hands and feet were wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face, and Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes, and let him go. Unbind him and let him go, says Jesus. I want you to think about this image for just a moment with me because it's instructive. Lazarus has been gifted with the power of new life. The big work has been done. He's alive, he's breathing, he's walking again, he's moving in the direction of fullness of life again, but he isn't yet free to pursue that new life because he is fettered still in a very significant way. He's still wrapped in the linens of death. He's constrained by strips of this old life that still hamper his movement and actually mask his vision, literally. And Jesus wants him to walk through this world as a new creation. In too many ways, however, Lazarus is still a mummy. He needs further help from beyond himself if he's truly to walk free. In an analogous sense, I wonder if this isn't also true for some of us. I wonder if some of us who are already so deeply loved by Christ whose lives are going to be fully and finally resurrected and redeemed, I wonder if we are not still bound and fettered like Lazarus was. I wonder if the strips of our old life still prevent us from entering into the fullness of the new. I read recently of some students from Strayer University in New York who set up a chalkboard on a sidewalk near a park in New York City. And at top this very large chalkboard, they simply wrote out a simple question. They wrote, 
What is your biggest regret? The chalkboard attracted the attention of quite a few passers-by. In fact, in a surprisingly brief time, it was absolutely filled to overflowing. Almost every single part of the chalkboard was written in with people's comments. People had said things like, I regret burning bridges. I shouldn't have burnt that bridge. I regret never speaking up. When I saw what was happening, and might have done something about it. I regret not being a good husband, not spending more time with my family, staying in my comfort zone, not saying, I love you. Not making the most of every day of life. Not being a better friend. Not asking for the help I need. Strip by strip, people aired their dirty linens. They aired the the remorse and the regret that was still wrapped around them, that was still holding them back, that was still keeping them from walking in freedom or joy. And I understand that remorse. I understand that regret. I understand the things on that board. I imagine you do too because we have these things wrapped around our hearts too. They wrap around our minds, our hearts like linens that are stinking of death and of hopelessness. But Jesus wants us to know that this is not the defining reality anymore because of who he is and what he has done. He wants those grave clothes off of us. He's He's commissioned you and me in the body of Christ to help strip those regrets off of one another and point us to be signposts towards the one who is the answer to our need. He has called all of us to the foot of this cross together today to remember the reason why we can with absolute certainty and full authority and complete confidence rest in the assurance that our sins have been fully forgiven. That a new way actually is possible for us. That Jesus has erased the mark of sin and death and he has opened the door to new life and standing here at the cross we must gaze up and remember that Jesus has now wrapped us in something far greater and more powerful than our mortality. On August the 16th of 1987, Northwest Airlines Flight 225 crashed. It crashed very shortly after takeoff from Detroit, it ended the lives of almost everybody on board and has 
emergency workers rallied to the scene. They found, to their amazement, a four-year-old child who was wandering amidst the wreckage. My name is Cecilia, she told them. Investigators first assumed that Cecilia must have been from one of the cars on the highway onto which the plane had actually crashed. But when the airline passenger manifest was checked, there was Cecilia's name. Gradually, the pieces of the story came together. As the plane was falling from the sky, Cecilia's mother unbuckled her seatbelt and she climbed out of her seat and she knelt down in front of her daughter and she stretched out her arms and she wrapped them around her precious child and she held on tight. She was absolutely determined to take the full brunt of the crash in her own body if she could she would never let her child go. As Brian Chapel observes, nothing could separate that child from her parents' love. Neither tragedy nor disaster, neither the fall nor the flames that followed, neither height nor depth, neither life nor death itself, nor anything else in all of creation could separate that particular child from the love that would do anything that would enwrap her fully in itself that she might live. Try to take in tonight the reality to which that story points. That you have been loved with a love even greater than that. As you behold the cross, as you come to this table, as you take in the fact that you are that child and Jesus is that love that has humbled himself and stretched out its arms and wrapped you in a full and a final and a total security. Let that free you. Let that free you from whatever binds you. Let the Holy Spirit at work through this community around you help strip off the vestiges of regret and death that don't belong on you anymore. For through the sacrifice of Jesus, through Jesus, through Jesus, your sin, your insufficiency, your mortality and mine has completely been covered, covered in Jesus Christ. We are forgiven and freed to walk out into new life from here. For this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen.